Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. When people choose to become doctors, they do so in order to save lives, to do things that are likely to lead to cures. My guest on the podcast today has spent his life as a palliative care physician where most of his patients are at the end of life. In this intimate conversation, he shares with me why he went into that field and what his work does to improve life for those patients and for their families. This is my conversation with Michael Fratkin. You're very welcome to the show, Michael Fratkin. I'm curious why somebody would want to be involved with dying patients. When we become doctors, we always want to deal with the heroic side of medicine where we're saving lives, but you're involved in a part of medicine that classically deals with people who are going to die. First of all, why did you do medicine and why that? Well, first, thank you so much for having me and thank you for asking me the kinds of questions I ask myself. I'll give you my current most credible answers, the, the answers that I most believe about why did I get into medicine and why did I get into this particular field of medicine. My first memory around death and dying comes from my family. And when I was about nine years old, my grandfather, Willie, he was such a character. He was about four foot eight, four foot ten inches tall. He had polio when he was a kid and he stopped growing. But my first memory of him was when I was teeny tiny holding his hand and looking up at him like he was a giant. He lived in Brooklyn, New York, and he was, of all the adults in my life and all the people in my family, he was the only one that I ever saw me. Like, didn't see me as the kid or Eddie's kid or my grandson. He saw me as the person that was becoming, and that was the way I wanted to be seen, even as a really little kid. So he was always very interested and you know, always very playful, very silly, crazy, funny guy. He was a musician. He was a comedian on vaudeville. He was a character. And he used to come up when I was you know, seven, six, seven, eight, nine. We lived in upstate New York. He lived in Brooklyn. And he and my grandmother would come up every month. And they'd come up from New York City and they would bring all the New York City stuff. They'd bring all the bakery stuff, all the deli stuff, all the pickles and the smoked fish and all the rest of it. It was a a monthly affair. They'd stay for three, four days and we'd do stuff together. And I looked forward to it. And then it stopped. And it stopped, I guess, when I was about eight years old. And as an eight-year-old kid, I maybe wasn't tracking it until about a year later when my dad called us together and said, your grandfather's dead. And I remember being angry. What do you mean he's dead? Where did he go? What's the story? And we packed us all up, and in the tradition, the, the sort of Jewish tradition, they put people on the ground very quickly. And so we scampered into the car, we went down to New York City, and we went to the memorial place, and there was this like strange chapel, and all of my relations looking around and patting me on the head, oh, he was a great man, oh, he was this, oh, you must be that. And I, I was just like... It was like fingers on the blackboard to me. And I was so angry and so other than, so disconnected. And I remember I, I walked by myself up the aisle to where he was in a casket. And I looked inside 
And I all of a sudden understood something that nobody else seemed to understand, that that body wasn't him. And therefore, my body isn't me. And I looked around at these people grieving in an unusual way, and I thought I had something on them. Like I, I caught some little whiff of insight that this body that we have is not our own. It's not, it's not who we are. That there's more to us that's much more mysterious and interesting to me. And that became, that kind of put a stake in the ground in my consciousness to think about what does it actually mean to be alive or dead or who am I or what am I or all of that. So that's, that's kind of my first conscious experience of death. And it was transformative and fascinating and awe-inspiring and maybe even a little sort of hubris producing. I felt like I was smarter than everybody else because they just didn't seem to get that. So I, you know, fast forward a bunch of years and I'm, you know, I'm undergraduate for like nine years. I took, you know, six different majors. I did a whole bunch of things. And I was a marine bi- biology major. And uh, it was during the, the late 80s when the HIV epidemic was ravaging populations of particularly of young gay men. And my best friend, who I was on a diving trip with, was a closeted gay man. And he didn't want to tell me, but I knew what was going on and I was worried about him. And on the way back from this trip in the Keys in Florida, we open up a newspaper and there's like this three-page, all-color, beautiful story on young men in hospice with HIV. And by the time we got home to where we lived in Tampa, we had both decided to volunteer with hospice. And so for the next couple of years, while I was still sorting out my undergraduate sensibilities, I uh, enrolled as a a volunteer with hospice. And so I got exposed again. The the question was more of fascination. It was like, what is it like to be a young, beautiful, vital young man who has to deal with their dying in their 20s? I wanted to know about that. And so I learned a little bit about that and became more interested in doing medical things and healthcare things. So I got a job, I got an EMT certification, and then I got a job at an emergency room, and I kept watching what was happening in front of me. And I was a, an emergency med- medical tech in the emergency room. And there was, it was very exciting, a trauma center and all the rest. And I remember I, my job was to go gather as much information I could from the people while they're getting their clothes cut off and while they're getting IVs placed. And x-ray is being done and there's all kinds of hubbub around and so i figured out that i could get above their head so that as they were on the stretcher everybody was working on their body but i could stand above their head so i could look down at their face upside down and talk with them and while i was trying to get the information i needed to contact their people or the basics of who they are i was also dealing with people who were in spectacular traumatic circumstances and i was talking to them and I realized as I talked to them, not because I was so trained and skilled and had so much to offer as a, some kind of a clinician, but just as a human being, by speaking to them upside down, I could, I could have an impact on their well-being. I could contribute to their well-being while the shit was sitting the fan, if I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. So that was transformative. And so I, I got interested in, first I thought I'd be a a paramedic, and then I thought maybe I would be a nurse, and then 
the doctors noticed when I was looking at the x-rays and asking about lab tests and how they figured stuff out and ended up being encouraged to, to move towards medical school. Mm. Uh, so that's how I ended up in medical school. I'm thinking, <laughs> now I'm thinking, here you are watching a lot of heroic things being done. And yes, being human was important to those people. I understand that. So why not end up as an intensivist or an emergency physician and bring that human side of you into that place? How did you end up in palliative care? And why palliative care? It's, it's really interesting. It was sort of around the corner that mm-hmm. I ended up in palliative care and returned to my first sort of nascent introduction in healthcare, what happened was I got very interested in complicated technical medical specialties. Mm. And in fact, I'm trained as an internist and actually was quite interested in cancer treatment and cancer medicine while a medical student. But I had a very special mentor. He was an HIV specialist at the University of Utah. And starting from, I think, the the last half of my first year of medical school, he invited me to come to his clinic once or twice a week. I would go and work a half day in his clinic, just observing and learning and helping in whatever way I could in the HIV clinic at the University of Utah. And it was this dichotomy. On the one hand, it was the last of the hemophiliacs that were exposed through blood transfusions were dying these generally young men. On the other hand, he was actively involved in clinical trials for antiretroviral therapy in the very early days, AZT, DDI, DDC. And we were starting to see some benefit with the chemotherapy for HIV disease. And so it was pretty fascinating to be both holding people as they completed their lives while also being able to lean in forward and apply the best medical thinking and the best biomedical science to try and change things for those people and to be able to hold both of those things. What happened was, is as I finished medical school, I ended up really pretty fascinated with aggressive chemotherapeutic interventions for HIV patients. And so I ended up as an HIV specialist in my first community clinic practice. And for many years, I was super fascinated by all the medical technical elements of things. I liked it in the ICU. I liked the complex bone marrow marrow transplant unit. I liked all that stuff. And it actually captivated my intellect and excited me in that sort of hero. It kind of hooked me, you know, saving lives in that heroic piece. But as time went by, I realized that that was about me. And then the more I attended to the experience, the lived experience, the people I was caring for, the less fascinated I was with the medical technical science. The, the analogy would be, it's like I, I went through all of this training, invested all this time to be an extraordinary high-performance automobile mechanic. And after a while... I decided I wanted to like lower the hood and walk around to the driver's side and open the door to engage with the driver rather than the vehicle itself. Back to my grandfather's story and the idea that this really isn't who we are. It's what we drive around in. Yeah. And I was much more interested in who we are. And so yeah. in the expression of interest in 
hospice medicine and palliative care and learning to bring all of my sophisticated understanding of medical therapies and the medical system that we're a part of, I was drawn deeper and deeper into learning from them what were the most important things to them. Not what was the matter with them, but what matters most to people who we can't save their lives, we can't extend their lives, we can only address the quality of their life in the current moment. Mm. And so that's, that was the shift for me, was after kind of my youthful enthusiasm and excitement for the science, I realized actually the more compelling draw for me were the people themselves. So I'm now going to ask you to stand again in the shoes of that boy looking at his grandfather's body in the casket and turn yourself and look right around you at the mourners who are sitting in the stalls in that place of worship. They're more likely to want to talk about sex and the nuances of sex than they are to talk about dying and what that's all about, because it's all about denial, right? The time you will see, you are lucky enough to see your grandfather in the casket. But a lot of the time, for many people, we just don't want to go there. We want to just put the lid on and pretend it hasn't happened. And we deny death, and we deny Mm -hmm. the fact that we are mortal. So you're going into an area where a lot of people, not just the person in the casket, but all the people around them are going to want to deny the fact that this is happening. How did you deal with that in your career? Because you'll have done it a gazillion times. I've done it a gazillion times and I've done it a gazillion ways. So I dealt with it with arrogance and a sense of righteousness and superiority mm. and ego mm. quite a lot of the time and it's only through well you could you can talk to the people i work with now to see whether i've managed to transform that but it's it's through my own sort of personal introspective work and really learning how to listen to people that i think all of my youthful desire for heroism or my projected need to be important started to fall away and i started to really approach people from where right where they are from right where they sit Mm. so most of my career i could say that i i I dealt with it by saying what's wrong with you people don't you see what's happening in front of you you know oh my god we're treating these people with more and more and more and more stuff that's reducing their quality of life, actually shortening their life in many circumstances, and really missing what they're telling you you need. What's wrong with you people? Mm. And that didn't, you know, really go over so that so great. My patients loved me, but my colleagues felt threatened by that sort of heavy-handed way of coming coming at things. Mm. To your analogy, the car is actually quite easy. The driver is a whole different gig. The dri- understanding the driver and communicating with the driver, that's, that's, and all the other drivers on the road, that's a different thing completely. For sure. And, and it's, it never unfolds to the expert. It only unfolds to the beginner. It mm-hmm. only unfolds to the who walks up without an understanding. 
I need to understand. I want to understand. I don't know what you need. I don't know who you are. Please help me to understand who you are, and then I'll bring whatever I've got to help you navigate and to be at your service. Mm. That is such a completely trans- revolutionary, radical approach to approaching people with illness. Now, people say, well, what, well how do you do what you do? And I, it's like really simple. I explain, this is who I am. This is what I bring. I'm a palliative care doctor. This is what palliative care is. I focus on seeing a person as the person they are, not the patient, not as a patient. I don't take care of any patients. I only take care of people. Mm. Number two, I've got some great and valuable skills in managing symptoms. I've got a really good bag of tricks and I know how to use them. And then the third thing is that I help people and their families to navigate through what are oftentimes very complicated medical situations, but what are always very, very hard human situations. Mm. Those three things. So I tell them who I am. I tell them I'm a father and a husband and a brother and a few other things as well as a palliative care doctor. And then I invite them to tell me who they are. And I, it, sometimes that goes very easily. Mm. Like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Not your medical problems. Don't tell me your history of your, your medical history. But tell me who you are. What do I need to know to get you? Help me draw a pencil sketch of your nature. And sometimes people are, oh, they're just so easy. Even by that time, just saying hello to them, I'm getting a read on their, on the quality of their, the, how, they, how they approach life. Sometimes that takes five minutes. Sometimes it takes 45 minutes. But when we're done with that, I said, so now what do you understand about your illness? And then they oftentimes understand it quite well. And where they don't understand it, I fill in and help them to recalibrate their understanding of it. And then I ask them, what's most important to you? What would you like to accomplish within the realm of what's possible? What are the things that are most important to you? And then we just get busy accomplishing that. I mean, that is not rocket surgery, but it's radical departure. Well, from you know, you might not think it's rocket surgery, but many others would think that it's rocket <laughs> surgery. It's a different skill set from the skill set that involves scalpels and prescription pads. Now, I want to go back because I'm still thinking about you mm, with yeah. that old man in that situation all those years ago. Do you think your grandfather knew who he was? More so than just about anybody else in my whole family system. Mm. He had more self-awareness. And with that comes curiosity for others. Yeah. When people are so busy projecting and broadcasting their nature, they actually don't have much room or curiosity for others. They're managing their own imposter syndrome, their own insecurities, their own everything. They're trying to build some idea of who they are and push it out into the world. And that that really is a buzzkill for the curiosity for who other people might turn out to be. And so, yeah, so I, I think that he, on the other hand, was very curious. He was very intentional about the choices he made in his life. They weren't about chasing the shiny object or being a big shot that was available in his world and other parts of the family. They were like, Willie, come, come join me in business. I'll make you a rich man. No, the job that he finished his life doing was he was the superintendent for a parking garage in 
I think one of his brothers who was very wealthy in his parking garage. So he managed a crew of four or five guys and they parked cars under a building in the Queens and he loved his job. He did the little bookkeeping and he had relationships with all the people that came and went to pick up their cars and take them wherever they went. While his brother had the first General Motors car dealership in Manhattan. He wanted no part of all that. He wanted a simple life and a simple doable job where he could talk to people and teach guitar and make people laugh. And that was, that was who he was. And he very consciously chose that. He, he was a very special man from what you're saying. Do you think he was ready to go? Do you think that at that point in your life, from your memory, can you think that he had had enough? This is, I, you know, in a, if I could rerun the clock, what happened was he got prostate cancer and he went into seclusion. The family and he opted to compartmentalize his illness. So his last year was very withdrawn and isolated from all of the juicy things that um, might have been different for him. So I really have no idea. I'm told that because of the treatment back in the day was surgical castration was how they slowed down prostate cancer. I think that was a, a huge impact to him and his sense of manhood, his sense of personhood. But I, I can't really know for sure because he was kept alone. That, that's why I was so mad. Like, what do you mean he's been sick for a year? Yeah. Yeah. Because for you as a palliative care physician, it's very much about getting people to the point where they understand that they are not just a bag of bones, skin and bones, that they are much more than that. And I'm trying to reflect back to what experiences you had early on that made you realize that they were more, and how you then help others to, your patients in particular, to see that that is the reality. Well, it's interesting. It's, it, it, it's easier than you might think, and it's right. less about me than it is about my curiosity allowed me to learn. Because it, it runs counter to the current sensibility of sort of Western civilization and its thoughts about death and denial. But it turns out when people's needs are met, when they're not isolated, when their symptoms are reasonably under control, that people actually experience greater well-being as their life slips away. As a, not a, I, I wish it was always, but I, I'm, I'm willing to say it's most of the time. Mm. When you can get food, shelter, clothing handled, when you can support their caregivers and de-intensify or drama, take the drama out of their lives, and you can manage their symptoms even while they're diminishing in their functional abilities, something about the human spirit naturally and organically comes to realize some very important things. Mm-hmm. Like relationships are really important. That love is available and present everywhere. Like you can reconcile and let go of things that you couldn't let go of for decades. And that really just creating the space around people to do this, it sort of unfolds naturally. There's nothing like the red hot fire of your mortality to fire and motivate people to make changes in the very 
basic structures of how they see themselves and how they see the world around them. Mm. And so it's amazing to me, once I got a clue on that, that that was the case, that all I had to do is create a space around them and empower the people around them to love on them and to show up for them and to ask them questions and give them space to have this healing unfold. Actually, it does unfold. Now, unfortunately, in this country and probably everywhere else in the world, if you don't have the basics handled, if you don't have the pain handled, if you're not treated with respect, if you don't have adequate caregiving or you're not safe, then this unfolding of healing just doesn't happen. But it, it's so interesting to me, and I realize that you know, human beings, I did this research a little while ago, human beings have been walking and crawling and stumbling across the surface of this planet for maybe, let's say, 100,000 years. And I looked it up as how many of us have there been? And it's been about 109 billion human beings, of which about 7 or so billion are still around, which means that 102 billion human beings have died. And I thought about this and studied it a little bit and had some history with anthropology and just kind of really reflecting on how we have accelerated, uh, over-accelerated our cultural evolution. But really, human beings have been living in a sort of stable way until 30 or 40,000 years ago. So most of the people that died, it was no surprise. Nobody grew up in a family where one or two or three children didn't die in their household. Nobody went to a hospital. Nobody expected a doctor or a nurse or a surgeon to come save the day. People integrated their experience of living, the struggles and the joys, with the presence of mortality living right there in, in the sort of core native human society and culture. And the caregiving structure wasn't a patriarchal doctor with a stethoscope around his neck. It was your wife, your brother, your aunt, your sister. And the elders, as they achieved uh, unusual age, carried the gravitas and held together the communities of people. And I realize, and I assert, that it has never in the history of human civilization been so bloody hard to complete a life, to finish a life, as it is these last hundred years. The more technology we get, the more illusion we create that everything's fixable, the more mechanical and industrial we are with each other as it relates to navigating illness the more isolated, alone, and detached we are from the actual experience of having been born, living a life, and then completing a life. It's never been harder to die than it is today. Mm. And because the principles are so kind of embedded in our human history and so emergent when you look for them, it makes a guy like, like me, kind of makes it easier. It's part of who we are. It's the paleo approach <laughs> to uh, understanding how to meet people's needs. 
And now I happen to be doing it in 2020 in this crazy world that we live in, threatened now by a pandemic that's taking life all over the world. But at the bedside, in every exchange, in every encounter, the path of greatest healing and most completion is, is right there. It's not always easy to get to in the context of our crazy society and compartmentalized world of technical stuff. It's not easy to do in the political environment. It's not easy to do with all the entitlement and lack of equity and racial disparities and economic inequality. But it's all it's always right there. It's always right there. I mean, human beings, we have such a, a kind of a built into our psyche a sense of self-importance. Well, I'll tell you another story. So my 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 daughter, when she was about seven, we had this book. It was called Life Cycles. And it was a book about all the different animals and how long they live, the tortoises that live for 350 years, the mayflies that live for 24 hours. And we were looking, and, and so she liked that book. I, I like that book. Because it, it makes you ask the question, well, how long is a life? What is a whole life? Well, it depends. If you're a mayfly, if you're a turtle, if you're a human being, that's a different thing. And so we were talking about that and talking about like uh, dog years and that concept, right? How long is a life? And we were watching some videos of these beautiful monarch migration. And I was explaining to her that the monarch butterflies, they fly from South America and Central America all the way up the coast to as far as like uh, California, even Minnesota, these migrations. And every year, these monarch butterflies, they fly north for six months and they fly south for six months. North for six months and south. So talking about it, she said, Dad, how do they do that? That book said they only live a month. I understood that no monarch butterfly has ever flown from Costa Rica to San Luis Obispo, California. It's six generations a butterfly flying north, six generations of butterfly flying south over and over. And again, I looked it up and on Wikipedia says that's been happening for 240 million years, this wave of orange up and down the coast. And I <laughs> think about it, like if you were to like stop and talk to one of those butterflies and ask them how important they were, oh, I mean, like without them, <laughs> the whole thing falls apart, right? <laughs> but the truth is, is that there is a dimension of our existence that we don't celebrate in uh, the sort of West, post-enlightenment, uh, celebration of the individual and the ego. We don't celebrate our collective nature and what we're accomplishing over time whether directed towards greater well-being or potential disaster with climate crisis or other more political problems, we lack a connection to each other beyond the duration of expiration of this body, right? And so the, the conversation I have with my daughter, who's now 14, is like, what value... Would you wish to bring for as long as you get to bring it? What value would you like to contribute? Or would you like to just take as much as you can and then regret it <laughs> at the last? 
what kind of a butterfly do you want to be for the short time that you get to flap those clumsy wings, you know? That's lovely, Michael. You know, you have a unique perspective of having seen so many butterflies come and go. And for from your perspective, to be able to hear what that music sounds like as we pass through this world and to persuade people or perhaps to help people to come to understand that they really are that beautiful, that there is, they are this butterfly that is going to leave a mark on this world. If only they could see what you can see. Of course, that's, that's the big secret. It's been a complete joy speaking with you today. I very much hope we'll have another conversation very soon. We could go on for another hour easy. <laughs> um, for sure. For sure. <laughs> let's talk again soon. Thank you so much. If people are interested in in the work that I'm doing, they can take a look at uh, the website at www.resolutioncare.com. And I am very grateful for the invitation to tell a few stories and think a bit more broadly than sometimes the day-to-day allows. So thank you so much for that, Moyes. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.